Imagine you picked up the most important book in the world, a book with words that can transform hearts. Included in this book are highlights and notes in the margin. This is the Notable Podcast, and these are the discussions of twin pastors who share their underlining and highlighting with you. This is Season 7, Life Reframed, a podcast on Ecclesiastes. Well, hello and welcome to the Notable Podcast. Uh, please do hit subscribe on YouTube. Join us on all the various streaming platforms, however you want to. Here we are. This is um, really an exclamation point on our season that we've called Life Reframed here on the Book of Ecclesiastes. Um, we're really privileged. We have this bonus episode, um, an interview with Professor Luke Thompson. He is a professor at Martin Luther College, which uh, Timothy and I were both um, alumni of this one wonderful institution. Oh, nice. <laughs> there you go. You got to pump that up. And he's written a book on, uh, here it is. I'm going to hold it up for you. It's called- I got Your mine Life. too. There it Look is. We're ready for you. <laughs> Beautiful. Thompson. <laughs> and he has done a lot of work on um, the book of Ecclesiastes as well. This is a chance for us to to hear um, from another voice, um, more notes in the margin of your Bible. And I, I just wanted to make a, a couple opening comments. You know, uh, Professor Thompson is is coming at this um, not just as a as a trained theologian, but also he has a master's in philosophy. So he comes at this as a philosopher as well. And I've read the book. It's um, the book is, is many things and, and it shouldn't be reduced, but I did want to make um, three comments about it just to, just to encourage everybody to, to, to pick it up. It's um, it, it looks slim. Um, but don't be fooled, it's dense. He packs a lot of stuff in there. And so here's three things to help you think about that. Um, the book ha has wonderful, what I'll call um, cultural apologetics. There are so many references to, to literature, um, to art, to different contemporary voices that um, it gives you so many different on-ramps to talk to people and think through um, a number of major concepts um, that are important as we, as we talk to other people, but also as we interact with the book of Ecclesiastes. So that's the first thing. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more. But secondly, um, Professor Thompson, can we call you Luke? We're gonna call you Luke. Please he, call me uh, Luke. Yeah. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. he, he comes at this, um, not just, like I said, as a trained theologian, but also he brings um, philosophical categories um, and they're a useful lens um, through which to, to view the book of Ecclesiastes. So um, hopefully, you know, we'll get into that a little bit more here in the, in, 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 in the podcast, but um, he helps us think about meaning in different ways and adds categories to our thinking, um, both uh, in terms of meaning, but also helps us think about the narrative of our, of our own lives. 
Um, and so that's that's the second thing is um, there's a new lens through which we can view our lives and also the biblical text here. And and the last thing uh, that is is just worth mentioning, I think, is that um, Luke does a wonderful job helping us think about how important narrative is. Um, Alistair McIntyre has a really important work called After Virtue, and there was just an explosion of um, theologians that picked up on his work as well and developed into a whole school of theology, actually. This is maybe more for trained theologians, but um, there's a whole school of theology called post-liberalism that um, followed McIntyre, and it's a massive movement in Christianity. Um, that also blossomed into something called narrative theology. Um, Stanley Hauerwas was a part of that, some of these big-time theologians. But here you have just a little snippet um, of how important it is to think about how narrative in the way, the narratives that um, we tell in our lives. Luke helps us think about how important that is in terms of meaning and, and morality. And for that reason, it's 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 worth picking up as a book. But here we are. We're not here to listen to me. We got Professor Thompson here. We've got Luke here, and we're excited to um, get into an interview with him. Yeah. And before we do that, you can get this book on Amazon. You can get it at Northwestern Western Publishing House. Your life has meaning. You can. It's really easy to find. You can get it in two days or whatever from Amazon. Pick it up. There's Kindle it's, editions too. Kindle editions, yeah. Yep. This is a. This is really worth. I I can give my own personal testimony that I've gotten anecdotes out of this for sermons, for teaching. I stole another one for Christmas Day. So this is even in a network of pastors that I'm in. This book made the reading list for the year. So. This is this is really a worthwhile book to pick up, and let's we we're gonna kind of move through this in three sections, Luke. We're gonna just ask you a little bit personally about yourself and how you um, came to this place and being able to share this wonderful work with us, and then we want to look at questions about your book, um, and especially just interact with the text then in in the book of Ecclesiastes. So let me just give you. a let me kind of throw your first underhanded pitch. <laughs> Can you share with us um, significant parts of your own story? And especially like, you don't have to tell your whole biography here, but the ones that would really inform the writing of this book. Yeah, certainly. And it's, uh, it's really quite a privilege to be with you guys again here and uh, working with you. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been a fan of notable podcast uh, since season one when it was you know a different title you know at that point and uh <laughs> i've kept up up until ecclesiastes and then you know i had the call and everything like that and everything went out the window but christine my wife she's been listening to all of ecclesiastes and super excited about uh when i'm gonna be able to do that so yeah privileged to be with you guys so while studying philosophy in undergrad grad school i started working with campus ministries in our church body. And my uncle Don, he's a pastor. He just passed away this last week. Uh, and my friend Mike Wessendorf and I, we had this vision of this kind of special campus ministry event that we started in Milwaukee called The Gathering. 
And the idea behind it was, um, could we host on campus, on college campuses, an event that wasn't straight up evangelism, wasn't like an apologetics debate, but instead just a comfortable place where Christians could invite their friends to hear a Christian talk intelligently about something, maybe something relatable. And we started with pop culture topics. They were kind of called pop culture in Christ. And then we went into film talkbacks. And 20 years later, I've given a number of these presentations, maybe 100 or so film nights and, and book club discussions and similar things like that. And so we do these kind of Christian philosophical analyses of topics like zombies, uh, superheroes, anti-hero shows like Dexter and Breaking Bad, fantasy like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, teen dystopias, horror. And one theme would constantly rise to the surface every time that we would have these kind of cultural philosophical conversations. And that was, how can you call your life meaningful apart from a Christian meta narrative? This was just a powerful, powerful theme throughout all of these different uh, cultural genres literary genres, film areas. And so I found myself just constantly coming back to Ecclesiastes. And this book that, you know, says under the sun, life is meaningless. Is that really true? Right? That apart from Christ, everything is meaningless. And in what sense uh, is everything meaningless? So this book was really a chance for me to take some Bible studies that I've been writing on Ecclesiastes and some of these kind of the greatest hits from these other talks that I'd given, as well as some very important experiences I had as a pastor with people that I really love. And I put it all into this kind of, I suppose, little narrative about about a big narrative, right? And uh, yeah, it's, it's short. It's kind of sweet in that sense, you know, but I hope we kind of find the ideas kind of big and epic that it talks about. It was a little bit more background luke what made philosophy something that's so attractive to you in your life yeah i I don't know if it was so much the uh philosophy right there's a lot of crazy ideas in philosophy as much as the philosophers so Mm. like like socrates telling us that the unexamined life is not worth living uh augustine you know responding to the manichaeans uh, and destroying their presuppositions um One of my favorites, Kierkegaard, trying to understand the ethics of Abraham, you know, being commanded to sacrifice Isaac. I think there's this deep, deep epic passion in the philosophers that I think really can only be matched by a passion of of heroes like Achilles and and, uh, Aragorn. And so philosophy, it's about kind of finding the edges of reason, right? What we can and can't talk about. Uh, It's the deep questions in life. And when the Christian particularly engages in philosophy using reason as this gift of God, right? In this ministerial sense, I think it leads to nothing but awe in the majesty of God's universe that we find ourselves in, but even more, you know, maybe to the point of the book, even more in awe in the meta narrative of salvation that we find. That's awesome. I, it's, it's great. I'm just, you're pinging me with all kinds of categories and words and, and I love it. I, one of the questions that I had is what makes Ecclesiastes kind of jump of all the biblical canon? Why would Ecclesiastes be the right book to put philosophy in, into conversation with this meta narrative and 
as opposed to I don't even know did was there other options for you or was it always just going to be Ecclesiastes well it definitely started with Ecclesiastes and what's kind of interesting right now is you know I've been kind of thinking what's what's kind of the next thing to really sink my teeth into and uh so Ecclesiastes is life is meaningless right so like what would be like 180 degree different from Ecclesiastes right what would be the polar opposite and in my mind that would be revelation right everything is meaningful like literally everything is as meaningful as it could possibly be right so epically mm. meaningful so i've been kind of thinking about that a little bit uh but i think ecclesiastes it's it's just one of the few books of the bible that is philosophical in nature its premise is that life is meaningless if there's no god that's the bible making a philosophical statement a deep statement about what the universe is really like not just what it's physically made of but what's behind what c.s lewis called like that veil of familiarity right so what the actual nature of the universe is it touches on questions of metaphysics um as well as you know questions of epistemology i mean every category mm -hmm. of philosophy there's obviously tons of ethics we'll probably get to some discussions about that as well but it's one of these few books that that does this in a very formal way and it provides then i think this foot in the door for discussions that you probably wouldn't be able to have with other books in the bible i'm waiting for that uh that treatment of revelation now i'm waiting for that that'd be that might wonderful. be a while in coming but yeah <laughs> you know. mm -hmm. what are you just to get closer to the the text of ecclesiastes what what verses like pull at your heart you know what what do you like what do you what do you think about you're laughing yeah <laughs> everything I, is meaningless <laughs> I, yeah well i mean i kind of find it a weird question because my way of understanding ecclesiastes is it's read as a confession solomon in his old age right he's reflecting back on his life of chasing after all the wrong things squandering his life away idol worship hedonism and so he's pouring out on these pages his confession so it's troubling to hear uh i mean it's it's deeply troubling for me anyways and the brute reality right of the worthlessness of this man's life of squandering so i don't know like in the same way if you two pastors had someone confessing their sins in your office if i were to ask you well what's your favorite part i mean it's kind of morbid right uh, but at the same time it's a beautiful confession right all the same uh i think my favorite part's probably for that reason gonna be the last chapter that just tour de force mm -hmm. of remember your creator i think that's one of the the more poetic parts uh of the wisdom literature there and it ties into some of solomon's other works as well um there's some great pro uh some great proverbial wisdom right in the midst of all of the nihilism as well in chapter seven right solomon says uh when times are good be happy but when times are bad consider this god has made the one as well as the other therefore no one can discover anything about their future right so he's just got these these beautiful things that are just kind of laid in there uh, throughout the text as well that I think are just worth coming back over and over again, even if you're not mm. feeling particularly like you need a nihilistic shot in the arm or something. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, you guys found, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's it's a great book. I 
the, mm-hmm. I'm walking away just so encouraged by it. And when as I was working through the book myself, I I was going one of the books I read alongside it was your book. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about it was what if you had a big hope with writing your life as meaning? It's probably in the title, but what would it be? What what were you trying to accomplish with it? Yeah, I I really had two goals. And the first, um, so despite being published by a publishing house that will probably do nothing to get this into the hands of non-Christians, and that's okay, right? NPH's market is almost entirely our confessional Lutheran church family. The book is obviously, though, written to a non-Christian audience. I'm trying to really use Ecclesiastes as an unconventional introduction to Christ and why he matters. Um, But there's, you know, a second goal that ties into why it's with NPH. So for the pastors out there, there's this kind of addendum that's at the end. That's for pastors where I kind of really lay out the second goal. I wanted to model an apologetic approach uh, that I call, as your own poets have said. When Paul's preaching in Athens, he didn't quote scripture once. Instead, he quoted the pagan poets of the time in order to find you know some kind of common ground uh, for discussion. And from there, he moved on to showing how the Christian God made the most sense of what the poets said. And so in the same way, we're starting with atheist philosophers like Nietzsche, Camus, media like Game of Thrones, right, and Lord of the Rings, and we're using them to find some kind of common ground and then moving on from there to show how in light of certain truths that we can identify even in these atheistic pagan poets, uh, the Christian meta narrative makes the most sense out of what our 21st century poets have said. And so Ecclesiastes is perfect for this. Solomon talks about all the pursuits of the heart and the same pursuits the poets and philosophers and scientists and pop stars of today are all talking about. Pursuing knowledge, right, and riches and legacy and most importantly, meaning. We're in a meaning-starved era of human history, right, where most young people are just constantly asking, what's the meaning of my life, right? Am I here for a reason? And that's specifically what this book, right, uh, is, is meant to explore, right? A conversation that Solomon started 3,000 years ago. As you agreed, Luke, just the, the nihilism, the inability to see what what matters and where truth lies is, is so difficult today. Where, uh, if there was one part of your book as you reflect here on Ecclesiastes, that you'd want to put in the hands of of um, somebody who's struggling with these things, what what part of the book would it be? Yeah, I think so. In general, probably you know, first and last chapter, the first ones, everything is meaningless, and the last chapters, everything is meaningful, right? So that lays out, you know, between the two, uh, and the last one's pretty short, but that lays out kind of the whole structure of what we're doing. Um, I think uh, the rest is details right in between. They're kind of different topics within that. And although I write uh, about a lot of Christian, especially kind of Lutheran ideas, I, I, so I think you can find certain things useful, like vocation, right? There's topics about that. So anyone asking, what am I here for? I would pray that they would find some good kind of signposts, right, in, in those sections uh, to help with those questions. But I don't know, first chapter, last chapter, like if you're in a rush, um, that's what I, I'd kind of say. Yeah. But I would I would say read the whole thing. 
There's, I was going to say, I kind of yeah. like the whole yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the right answer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we wanted, I wanted to get into some of the text of Ecclesiastes with you and then also some of the text of your book and just read some passages for our listeners. And I, I, I'm hoping that if they haven't picked up the book, it'll provoke me like, yeah, I really do need to pick up this book. But early on in the podcast, and this, I think this is podcast number two, we covered Ecclesiastes chapter one, and that really what's the prologue of, of Ecclesiastes. We talked about how Solomon moves us far from the Garden of Eden and with John Stein back then, we're east of Eden, where we're, it's cyclical, we're going nowhere, there's no progress, there's just human frustration. And um, in commenting on that section in your book, I'm on page 27, you talk about how one particular atheist author, his name's Jeffrey, Jeffrey Taylor, he, he just kind of loves that. And I just want to read this quote. Um, he says that Ecclesiastes is a book of the Old Testament that I, an atheist with an ardent distaste for religion, find consoling, calming, and wise. As the years pass and cares mount, as pleasures fade with repetition, and the senescence and deaths of family members bear down relentlessly, I find myself turning to Ecclesiastes for comfort, inspiration, and despite its melancholy tidings, cheer. Luckily, Ecclesiastes barely mentions God. <laughs> so, such irony. When it does, the words seem almost pro forma, as though the author had suddenly thought, hey, I better at least nod to the Lord, or they won't put my book in the Bible. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I just wanted you to respond to that. What, is, what do you think um, Taylor gets right? And what would you say, I think you have to take another look at this book. Yeah, I... So I love the the East of Eden analogy, right? I, I, or tie it in with you know Steinbeck's uh, title there and what he was trying to do in that work. I think that's a perfect perfect picture of of how to begin looking at something like Ecclesiastes and what we have in front of us, which kind of shows that Taylor's talking about something different, right, than us. Um, I think Taylor, other skeptics, atheists, you know, philosophical materialists, naturalists, most of them acknowledge that if we are nothing, like nothing but matter, you know, just atoms and energy, if we're nothing more, then Solomon is right in the narrow sense that everything is meaningless. And that's why Taylor likes Ecclesiastes, because he's reading Ecclesiastes about as narrowly as you possibly can, right? Uh, there is no transcendent, meaningful purpose to your life or mine. We're just atoms arranged in this way for a short time, and there's just nothing more. And that's valid, right? That's, that's, that's a valid inference from their starting conclusion. The question, though, is, is it true, right? Is it not just logically coherent, but does it produce actually true truths? So right now I'm rereading Chesterton's Orthodoxy, uh, I'm assigning the text to my philosophy class. I think it's a good introduction to, to apologetics and philosophy. And he makes this point. He says naturalistic explanations like, like this are unassailable. The logic is valid. It can be a total explanation. In that sense, though, he says it's like a perfect circle, but it's a very, very small circle. Compare it to someone, he says, who believes in like a conspiracy theory, uh, like believes like a conspiracy that 
everything and everyone in the world is out to get him. Now, you cannot prove to this person that everyone in the world is not out to get him, right? You could say to him, uh, I'm not out to get you, and he'll respond, that's exactly what I expected you to say, right? You're trying to trick me. His reasoning is valid, right? It's a, it's a perfect circle, but it's, it's a small circle, right? Uh, just think of what he's lost with that explanation. The idea of friends, right, and trust, and, and being part of bigger stories that allow for great virtues. The crazy conspiracy theorist, says Chesterton, is just like the naturalist who believes the world is nothing but atoms and energy, nothing more. It's a perfect circle, but it is a small circle. He can explain everything, but it does it by invalidating and annihilating everything that we know is true, right? Chesterton says it's, it's not thinking of the real things of the earth, of fighting peoples or proud mothers or first love or fear upon the sea. And so maybe just thinking about proud mothers for a minute. That was uh, all right. Oh, um, whoa. You memorized It's a good one, right? Yeah. How right. do we not love Chesterton when he says stuff like that? Come on. But so think about this, right? So he thinks about proud mothers, right? And this idea of them. Uh, just an example. And maybe you've had something like this in your ministry. Uh, this is a conversation I've had many times. I once had it. Uh, just in this past year with, with a devoted mother. Right now I'm thinking about this woman. She had terminal cancer, uh, and I had the privilege of speaking with her and counseling her for about a year. When I first started speaking to her, she was not a Christian, and she loosely bought into this kind of generic materialist worldview that science could explain everything in terms of matter and energy. And like an abbreviated form of our conversation might go something like this. So if that's the case, if we're just matter, if we're just atoms, then humans are just complex arrangements of, of atoms, right? We're not here for a purpose or a reason. Just different random or determined movements of atoms have brought around this affair that we find ourselves in, no mind behind it all, right? Right. So that means there's no transcendent value to these arrangements of atoms, right? A rock, a tree, a hummingbird, right? all all don't have this transcendent value, right? Right. Now, I know on some level you want to explain everything within that per within that you know perfect circle, but let's just make this a little personal here. You've got a daughter, right? Right. Is your daughter nothing but matter? Right. Just a complex arrangement of atoms. Pause. Right in the conversation. You value your daughter. But let's say when this cancer takes you, and now imagine that no one else on this planet values your daughter. You were the only person who did, but you're gone. Is your daughter still valuable, even if there's no human around to value her? Yes, right? You know that for certain, right? Right. There's something about your daughter that makes her valuable, whether or not another human being values her, right? Right. Well, where did that come from? Right, that value, it can't come from under the sun, from the mere arrangement of matter. So there must be something up there, so to speak, right? Something overarching, a something that gives and anchors the value of your daughter. And so it really comes down to this at the end. Which do you know with more certainty that the world is nothing but atoms or that your daughter has an inherent value, not determined by the opinions of people? 
And these two different premises, they're going to lead to two radically different conclusions that exclude the other. And I think the problem with, with individuals like Taylor is the small circle that they're willing to live with. But when you talk to most individuals on a day-to-day -day basis and you explain right, just what you are giving up, what you are giving up with that tiny perfect circle, um, man alive, like you know that there are things that you know are true that, that you're giving up in that. And, and Solomon's text is forcing us into that position. Right? He's forcing us to make that decision. Right? Either it's, it's all meaningless Right. Or the things that, you know, have meaning. Right. They're true. But they but but then it forces you to think in a grander sense. Right. Then then you're comfortable with maybe. So, you know, that was a lot right there. But I like good. how yeah. you gave us like a visual where we can pack these ideas into a small circle and then realize that the biblical worldview, the biblical idea is so much bigger yeah and has so much so many more capacities and actually takes in the physical world but includes within it the proud mothers yeah yeah and and chesterton's big point is that it's not as if christians have a perfect circle that's just bigger in in in, in orthodoxy he makes it clear no there's contradictions right but the contradictions are what make us have the actual most realistic explanation of the world that we experience and so instead of a circle he describes uh the, the the christian worldview as a cross right there's a contradiction that's at the middle but it can expand infinitely in all directions um and i think it's a it's a, f a far better world to live in right a, um, a cruciform yeah. philosophy yeah yeah there you go well luke we we also explored in in um episode three we were talking about not far apart and um that's what we called it and what we were doing is we were um, thinking about pleasure and the meaningful life and um, solomon comes to hate his life and we took off on this and we we looked at the carpe diem passages in ecclesiastes there there are a number of them of them and in your book you spend time doing that as well and this was really helpful for me. I had a really reductionistic view of Epicureanism before I read your book. And you actually helped me nuance um, this idea of what he was actually promoting. You know, it's a whole lot more than eat, eat drink, and be merry. Um, you wrote this. You said, Epicurus is not promoting a life of senseless pleasure seeking, which is, I think, sometimes what we reductionistically think. Um, drugs, uninhibited sex, and watching TV every day. He responds to his critics that pursuing those types of things obviously doesn't lead to sustainable, deep, pleasurable life. Your life would simply be miserable. Rather, the pleasurable life includes a good amount of moderation, something akin to the wellness movement today that promotes a disciplined life, especially in regards to diet, exercise, mental stimulation, and psychologically healthy habits and thinking, but also being careful not to overspend on vitamins and probiotics. I, I kind of like that little <laughs> parenthetical that, that you stuck in there too. Can you help us compare and contrast what Solomon's approach to pleasure is in, uh, as compared to um, the major world philosophies? Yeah, I, I think the when you especially look at the history of philosophy and the way that people like the Epicureans, the Stoics, 
other individuals, the way that they, they crafted the good life is, I think a lot of it, we would look at it and we'd say, there's, there's a lot of value to this, right? They're, they're not idiots. They, you know, no one thinks that somehow binge drinking is going to give any kind of lasting pleasure in life, right? Um, the problem though is that so many of the world philosophies, uh, at least a number of them, especially the ones that probably influence people today more than anything else, the emphasis is still on pleasure, right? Even if it's nuanced. And so the meaning and value of life is still somehow being associated with pleasure. So how, how, do, how do most people, you know, view the role of pleasure in life? Well, generally, you know, you'd ask, you know, well, what's the purpose of life? Someone will say, well, it's to be happy, right? Or something like that. And pleasures in life, they're a form of happiness, right? So I want to collect as many pleasurable experiences as possible. And when I look through my Rolodex of pleasures, I can remind myself of how happy I am, right? And so for today, you know, um, that's not going to just mean, you know, lots of pictures of me having all these parties uh, that's on my Rolodex, but it might also be, you know, here's me mastering this yoga pose, right? Or me, you know, visiting this far off place, right? Doing things that we would say, well, those are val those are valid, you know, pursuits, you know, given, you know, the right context, right? And we actually have Rolodexes of pleasure now, right? So every few days, my iPhone bings and tells me, hey, look at this memory from last year. I don't, I don't know how many phones do this, but mine does this all the time, right? It says, remember this, right? And you know, why, you know, what's going on there? It's my phone is trying to get me to look through my photos on my phone. Well, why do I have so many photos to remind me of all the good times, right? The power of Facebook was being able to quantify these pleasures, right? A history of people giving me thumbs up to all these different events and relationships. It was, it was, it was an attempt to quantify the, the pleasures that I have in life. What's interesting though is like lately, we're even taking it a step farther. So Instagram, Snapchat, these don't keep histories, right? In the same way that Facebook did. You can save some stuff, but there's also been a change in the social weather where we're looking for both spontaneity and the ability to collect memories at the same time. So what's going on here? And I think this is just an incredibly interesting question. Uh, and is there a problem with collecting these memories and trying to have this spontaneity at the same time. So, so, so my philosopher Kierkegaard, uh, in one of his works, he explores just this idea. He invents this character that he calls the aesthete. And I think I mentioned him in the book a little bit. And the aesthete, the aesthete, his goal is to live the most pleasurable life possible. And so he begins by going out and collecting as many pleasurable experiences as possible, right? And so he's doing it in a rather radically hedonistic way, so as many women and parties and adventures as possible. But he notices two things. First, there's this kind of philosophical existential problem. If your life is nothing but experiences, and like literally nothing but experiences, and there's no overarching story that the experiences can fit into, then they're meaningless, right? So imagine a story, imagine watching an, a TV episode, a movie, a book, that is just a bunch of random things happening to a person, but there's no plot. If there's no plot, there's no story, and so you quickly realize that there's really no point to watching any of this, right? So even reality shows, 
which are supposed to, you know, be kind of day-to-day things. Even reality shows, there's a plot to every episode. There's something that you're waiting to see whether it gets resolved or not. But if there's none of that, if it's just the experiences, nothing tying it together, there's no reason to watch. Uh, the same with our lives. If there's no story to fit our pleasurable experiences within, then it's, it's, it's meaningless. The aesthete says he feels like his life uh, Kierkegaard's picture is that it's like a word. His, he feels like his life is like a word that has several definitions that are just completely unrelated to each other, right? So that's one of the main problems. But there's also this practical problem with doing nothing but collecting experiences. And I, I don't think this part's in the book. But the other big problem is the aesthete, he gets bored. And maybe our listeners will find this hard to believe, but you can sleep with enough women that it actually gets boring and you can eat enough of the same great food, right? That that great food gets boring. You can visit the same exotic location enough times that it gets boring. Why? Well, you get used to it. The uniqueness, the novelty of it, and right? it wears off. It becomes common. So what's the solution? Kierkegaard's estate figures out the solution. The solution is that you need to forget everything. Right, you have to forget everything that you've done so that everything seems completely novel. And it's a clever solution. What's this life like then? So now imagine waking up with no future, no past, just this endless, pointless present. And so this solution is far worse than than the first one, right? So collecting experiences, they can make us feel good, even if they're healthy experiences for a time and there's therapeutic use right in remembering the good times when you're down and there's plenty of biblical you know I, I read a great you know quote from solomon right about how how good it is to remember the good times right but but we can't make the mistake that pleasurable experiences in and of themselves that they give your life purpose or meaning right those experiences need to find themselves in a larger context and story but here's the cool thing. If you have the right story, then you can find purpose and meaning not only in the pleasurable experiences of life, but also the painful experiences, right? A good meta narrative transforms hardships into steps toward a good ending. And that's what God does through Jesus. He transforms not only the good, but also the bad into parts of your story being reunited with God, right? Being redeemed back into his family, given value, and now this purpose in life. Luke, whoa. I mean, there's there's a lot in there. And what a stunning, I hope people are listening. I was listening that what a stunning analysis of Facebook. I almost was thinking about it, like we should rename it as pleasure book. And then just admit that with, with that analysis and um, understanding that we need to put it inside of a coherent narrative. And what happens when we trim off the, the past and the future and instead live in sort of a ahistorical present is a truly a devastating life. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. That was, wow. No more FOMO or anything like that, right? (laughs) (laughs) I I want to switch gears here. Uh, Solomon does the same. And really kind of right on the heels of of Solomon uh, being frustrated with pursuing pleasure as as the ultimate good in chapter two 
the first topic that he turns to almost immediately in chapter 3 then is injustice. And we looked at it in the podcast, um, Solomon's deeply sensitive heart. He feels, he feels and sees the injustices of the world. Um, and, we, and we went into that. And people today are very sensitive to uh, injustice and, and we're able to see it perhaps more now than, than we were before. In your book, really predating the, the pandemic and some of those things, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it asks this question, it, is there progress? And this really, this really caught my attention. And I'm going to read a, just a passage from what you wrote, Luke, and then follow it by this question. Um, answer that question for us. Is there progress? So this is what you said. They are worth deploring. So he's talking about injustice here. Therefore, we could rightly conclude that we indeed ought to be seeking out better ways to govern, better ways to deal with famine and poverty, better ways to deal with emotionally and psychologically broken people, better ways to encourage the respect of women in the workplace, better ways to take care of the environment, you name it. This helps our neighbors. This undoes evil. This is progress. But Solomon does not draw that conclusion in Ecclesiastes. He does not issue such a call for progress. The teacher pulls no punches in his assessment of the problems of this world, problems that cripple even the very institutions that should be working justice. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. Ecclesiastes 3.16 Yet instead of responding with an ethic of working against oppression, injustice, and violence, which Solomon could have provided, his book, skip the page, his book of Proverbs has a good deal of this kind of encouragement that's parenthetical. His goal here is to lift our gaze higher above the things under the sun to think more deeply than simply how to fix things. God's understanding of progress is far greater and far more epic than we could ever imagine. Now you start answering the question there, but could you build on what you were saying there? What is Solomon's view of progress? Yeah, and and I think there's probably maybe two different directions you can take the discussion as well, because uh, this is particularly uh, become prevalent with the language of justice, right, and injustice and things like that in in the last couple of years, and this desire for some type of progress in these areas. So. So I, th- I think the first thing to is, to, is that you, you need to acknowledge that there's this pervasive evil, right? And this corruption to the things in our world. And try as hard as we may, we're never going to fix it. I, th- I think one of the beauties of Ecclesiastes is that it was written by a, uh, by a Middle Eastern uh, Jewish writer instead of a Western philosopher. And so it doesn't have the same kind of structure that we would expect from some type of philosophical treatise. Instead, it's poetry, and it has that kind of Hebraic, you know, poetry form, uh, you know, much like a first John or something like that, where these themes are just coming up over and over again. But instead of beautiful themes coming up over and over again, right, there's like this toll of injustice that rings throughout the letter. And it just, it's almost as if he talks about it, and then he moves on to something else, and then he just has to go back. Right. And and then talk about something and he just has to go back to injustice and it just comes up over and over again. And it just really drills 
you know, I, I think in this idea that that this is an unfixable problem that we find. We're never going to reach Eden. That doesn't mean, though, that we shouldn't fight against evil in this world, but it does mean that we're not fighting against evil because we think we're going to conquer it on our own. Right? Mm -hmm. To do that, we'd have to take out ourselves along with whoever we're calling enemy. Right? And I think Solomon was brutally aware of this and his own sins and the injustice that he saw in Israel. Instead, the Christian has to ask, you know, the, the question, you know, well, why does God leave us here with this insurmountable problem? And the biblical answer is so that we realize it is insurmountable, that progress under the sun is hopeless. And so we have to lift our gaze upwards. It's insurmountable for us. So we have to turn to the only person that can surmount these evils, right? Including the evils that we find within our own hearts. And only Christ can do that. And, and when the Holy Spirit does his thing, he transforms not only our hearts, but also our worldview. There's this beautiful song by uh, Gungor, uh, that, uh, that one music group. And in it, they, you know, they're describing how the world wants to make uh, Christianity, along with all the other kind of things, this kind of us or them type thing, right? And we just hear this everywhere and, and kind of think of both the right and the left, right? Defining everything in terms of us or them. And the point of their song is that Christ transforms an us or them thinking into an us for them thinking. And it's a very, it's a very mm -hmm. cool play on words. Their point is that Christ transforms the Christian's way of looking at this world as this kind of polarizing place of good versus evil people, which is the same narrative that both the right and the left uh, give us, right? We're good. Everyone else is evil. And it transforms us from thinking in terms of us or them to modeling ourselves after the sacrificial love of Christ dying for our sins. We've been called to a life of us for them, right? So that's the first thing I think Ecclesiastes wakes us up to. Progress is impossible under the sun, but when we bring our gaze upwards, the biblical meta narrative gives us a hope for the future that you can't find in this world, right? A hope that transforms us into being even more interested in self-sacrifice for the good of my neighbor than we would otherwise be interested in. I, I think the second place this discussion goes or could go is under the sun in this day and age, do we even know what we're talking about when we use terms like progress and justice and evil? One of the things that I appreciate about philosophy is this kind of goal of thinking slowly and defining terms before we use them, trying to avoid equivocating terms. And I think this is most important today when Christians think about politics. When the right uses the word freedom, they don't for a second mean the same thing as when the Bible talks about freedom, right? When, when Paul brings up freedom, for example. And when the left uses the term justice, don't for a second think that they mean the same thing as biblical justice. On the left, the use of the term justice flows from this weird philosophical past of postmodernism and Marxism and deconstructionism where the world is interpreted entirely in terms of power dynamics. And, and nothing more. And there's certainly no transcendent ethic or narrative. It's just power dynamics. And so in that sense, Christianity is, pro is oppressive along with, with any other institution, right? Because it's been part of the majority for so long. And thinking like this actually strips justice from its full robust understanding. And 
you know, right now I'm picking on the left uh, because we're talking about, you know, justice and progress, but I would pick on the right just as much with how the enlightenment has stripped the idea of freedom from any robust biblical sense. So then what is the biblical idea of justice and, and injustice? And simplified, we might say something like this. So you, you know the passage in Isaiah 43, right? Isaiah says, now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, don't fear, for I've redeemed you, right? I've summoned you, I've summoned you right? by name, you're mine, right? And so God, God says to the Christian, you've been created, you've been redeemed, you've been called, and so you belong to God. That's our identity in Christ. And it changes then the way we look at other humans. Every human being in this world has been created by God, right? They, they were in the mind of God before the creation of this world even, right? And then Jesus paid his price and blood for every human being. So what's the value? And this gets back, you know, the whole Ecclesiastes thing of where does value and meaning come from? Well, what's the value of each human? Christ's own blood. We can actually put a price tag to it, right? We belong to God in these myriad ways. So then when we sin against each other, which is the biblical genus for that species that injustice fits under, when we sin against each other, we're, we're sinning against God and his purchased property, right? Injustice is not political. It's a transcendent act of evil against an infinitely valuable God-created person. And you can't get that under the sun, right? You can't get that either from the left or the enlightened right. And that means progress doesn't even have to come into the conversation for the Christian to be wanting to do the right thing. I'm going to fight against injustice, biblically defined injustice, because it's the right thing to do, end of story. God doesn't ask me to fix the world, but he does call me to give my life for it, right? Because each human is worth it. Jesus has made each human being worth it. And so I think all of our views on these topics get radically redefined once we begin to bring our gaze up, right? Um, that's, Luke, I think Luke that's, we walked on eggshells and you just went right on in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just say this too, like one of the hard things about talking about this is that everything is so politicized and polarized. And what I think everything that applies here to what we just said is, well, we're, what Solomon's trying to do is remove this, this. This isn't political. And Luke, you said the same thing. Yeah. It's like, this isn't a political thing. This isn't a Republican talking point or Democratic talking point. This is God's word. And I, I'll i also say the same flippant thing that I said earlier when we talked about this. Like Solomon, the way he leaves his longest discussion of his injustices, he, uh, he just leaves you with the questions like, is there a better way? And he doesn't think so. So if if you can, if you know a better way than than the second wisest man ever walked the face of the earth, then you can inform the rest of us. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Uh, one last question, right, Jonathan? Should we give it to him? And then, if, if Luke, if you had anything else that you wanted to share, but in our last episode, we we went full Charles Dickens, and it was Christmas time too, yeah. and we're just where Dickens whisks us into the future, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And Scrooge sees a future that he desperately wants to avoid. And and Solomon does the same thing at the end of his book. And I, I want to 
we, we looked at that last week on the podcast and I want to whisk us to the end of your book too because I think you really do the same thing and in the in your last chapter which is my favorite one and I it must have been your favorite too if if what your comments early in the podcast indicate that I think they did um, what what would you say is your favorite part of a passage or point in in your last chapter I just want to give you a chance to speak on that because I think it's really like the whole if we get this locked in we're gonna get it we're really gonna get it yeah so so uh, since I've you know started teaching probably the ideas from this last chapter that I've touched on more than anything else uh, so at the very beginning of it there's an interesting quote from this this book that has to do with uh, a first nation uh, first nation groups in Canada and what leads to suicide rates in them and then you know I draw some implications from that into meta narrative and I think that's 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 an incredibly important illustration to think about but but it's also incredibly depressing we've kind of talked about some of those themes as well the other thing that that I've used probably more than anything else is in the back there's a quote from uh, Lord of the Rings and this is, uh, I don't know, I, th- I think this is huge. So, so I'll, I'm just going to read the quote, if that's all right with you. Yeah, I love that quote. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. And so if you don't know anything about Lord of the Rings, you know, for our listeners here, it's a story about, uh, primarily about these two tiny little creatures, you know, called hobbits that have been given this incredibly impossible task of trying to destroy this ring. Uh, and to do it, they have to go into the most horrible, evil land possible to do it all by themselves, right? To carry out this entire task all by themselves. And it's just grim and dark, you know, once they get into this evil land and they're just constantly kind of, you know, being tempted to give up hope that there's any way that two little small creatures like this can do absolutely anything. And so while they're in this kind of dark land, there's this quote. So, you know, I, at some point, there peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tower high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and his hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. So imagine that you're standing out in the middle of a thunderstorm. I don't know if you've ever got a chance to do this, right? But you're standing right in the middle of the storm, right? So it's all black clouds above you and it's going infinitely, you know, looks like, right? It's from horizon to horizon, right? So it's all you see, right? You don't see the edge of it at all. It just goes on. As you're standing there, as far as you can tell, how far does the storm go? It could go on forever, right? It could go on infinitely in any direction. There's no way for you to tell. Right, as from, from where you're standing. And how far can it go, you know, vertically, straight up? It could be going on forever, as far as you know, right? But what would happen, you know, what happens if if the clouds part for just a moment and one single beam of starlight gets through that cloud? What does that one single beam of starlight tell you? It tells you that this is a passing thing. It tells you that there is an end to this darkness, that it does not go on forever in every direction. It tells you 
that it does not go on forever that way either, right? But instead, that above the storm, at infinitely greater distances, it is past, right? And that there is peace and that this storm will pass in some way, shape, or form. The gospel is able to do this for us. It is able to, even, even if all you hear is just a glimmer of it, and all you get is just a single star beam of gospel, it is able to tell you that the storm is passing, right? That you are part of a meta narrative in which that storm will pass, and that there are places beyond the reach of the storm, right? And we have the ability to do this as Christians. Every time that we're sharing the gospel, what is it that we're doing? We get the opportunity to, to part the clouds, right? Just a little bit for that individual so that they see that single starlight that comes through that tells them that this will pass, right? That, that the darkness that they are experiencing does not have to be the only reality that there is. And in fact, it isn't, right? That starlight proves it proves that this is a passing thing and that there is good that's beyond it all. And that's what Christ does. And that's the privilege that we have as, as messengers of the gospel that God has sent us out with into this world. That's awful timely there, Luke. You know, we think about stars this time of year and <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. that's pretty timely. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that's all I get is starlight. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with us. Um, please do remember, if you're listening to this, pick up pick up the book, Your Life Has Meaning, Discovering Your Role in an Epic Story by Luke Thompson. There it is. We're holding it up. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can pick it up at Northwestern Publishing House. I believe you can pick it up also on Amazon. And uh, hey, Luke, thanks for helping us put a exclamation point on this season of Ecclesiastes and helping us see the book um through a different set of eyes and make some more notes in the margins much Absolutely. appreciated yeah, merry, merry christmas, christmas to you happy to happy you new year mm-hmm. thanks for listening to the notable podcast You can check out our other seasons on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. If you are enjoying this ministry and are so moved to support it, please visit us at www.thenotablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.